Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm so glad you've chosen to join us at Christ Community Church. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, we're going to open your book and look at a very familiar story. So we pray that you give us fresh insights. In Jesus' name, amen. My grandfather was raised in Pennsylvania, but he moved to northern India as a young man. Grandpa Nicodem had a huge heart for people, and he wanted to share God's love with them. So he started an orphanage, a school, a medical clinic, a church. Unfortunately, Grandpa died of heart disease in India at the age of 42. He was buried in a cemetery on the side of the Himalaya Mountains, so I never knew him. But some years back, my wife Sue and I were traveling in India, and we decided to go looking for Grandpa's gravesite. Now, we knew the village where he died, and there were several cemeteries nearby. A caretaker led us in through a rusty iron gate. The gravesites were laid out in tears going up the side of the mountain. The view of the surrounding Himalayas was breathtaking. As Sue and I began our search, we split up so we could cover more ground. The gravesites were all overgrown with weeds and vines, making it necessary to clear away the debris in order to read the headstones, inscription after inscription in Hindi. <laughs> no names we could recognize but we were determined to find my grandfather's grave. Well, about an hour and a half into our search, Sue called out from 100 feet away and several tears up, I found it, I found it. I raced over and helped her clear away the ground cover, and, and there it was etched in stone, my grandfather's name, Frank Nicodine. I traveled thousands of miles to find the resting place of the grandfather I never knew, and my search, my search was successful. I was elated. It was an amazing experience. So when was the last time you engaged in an intense search for something? I mean, you were on a mission to find what you were looking for. Maybe it was lost car keys, or maybe you were searching for a new job or just the right wedding dress, or a doctor who could finally diagnose your problem. Maybe you were looking for your runaway dog or a match on a dating website. You put a lot of effort into that search. You were not going to give up until you found whatever. Now, since we're celebrating Christmas Eve, let me ask you, what are you looking for today? What do you hope to find in this Christmas season? Maybe you're searching for the right gift for a friend or a family member, or just looking for a few quiet days away from Zoom meetings or online schoolwork. It could be you're looking for a little Christmas nostalgia, some falling snow, home-baked cookies, Michael Buble playing Silent Night in the background. I mean, what are you looking for? Several centuries ago, a famous French scientist and philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal, he wrote that there's one thing we're all looking for, something to fill the God-shaped hole in our lives. Now, whether or not we're aware of that hole, we're constantly trying to fill it with our job, or a boyfriend, nicer car, grandkids, but nothing is big enough to fill a God-shaped hole except God himself. So maybe we're all looking for a little more God in our lives this Christmas season. If that's you, I'd like to give you three tips for finding God. Okay, three tips for finding God that come out of a familiar Christmas story. We're going back in time to the story of some ancient travelers who were on a search mission. Now, it's a familiar story recorded in the Bible's Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Let me read the opening verses of this story to you. This is Matthew 2, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, three tips for finding God from this story since every one of us, whether we know it or not, is trying to fill a God-shaped hole in our lives. But before I give you the first tip, we need some background information. Uh, Who were these magi and what's the deal with the star? Well, the Magi were a combination of astronomer and astrologer. As astronomers, they scientifically studied the night skies. As astrologers, they were constantly looking for messages in the stars. Now, in ancient times, it was often thought that a new star in the sky heralded the birth of a significant person, maybe a world ruler. The Magi saw such a star. Several years ago, I visited Chicago's planetarium shortly before Christmas. Uh, There was a special program that offered scientific explanations for the Magi's bright star, the star that played such an important role in the original Christmas story. Was it a conjunction of planets? Maybe a supernova, a comet? Well, there are significant problems with each of these explanations. It may be simplest just to believe that the star was a supernatural phenomenon. God placed it in the sky for a special purpose, and it led the Magi to Jerusalem. So what can we learn from the way in which they conducted their search that can be applied to our search for God? Three tips. Number one, ask questions. Ask questions. I now have seven grandchildren, all very young, so I'm constantly hearing stories about the amusing questions they ask their parents. My granddaughter Ruby recently asked her mom, now you told me I was made by God, but Layla says her mom made her. So how does that work? (laughs) How does that work? Good question. According to an online article I read, children ask an average of 73 questions a day. 73. This usually begins at age three as the left side of their brain begins to develop. So asking questions is a healthy sign. Unfortunately, we sometimes lose that inquisitiveness as we get older. Is it because we think we have all the answers or that we're so caught up in the hustle and bustle of everyday life that we don't have time to step back and contemplate bigger issues? The Magi, according to Matthew chapter 2, entered Jerusalem asking questions. The first words out of their mouth were, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Interestingly, nobody else in Jerusalem was asking that question. King Herod didn't know what they were talking about. And the religious leaders of the day, they didn't seem to be interested in spite of the fact that their Bible, Numbers 24, verse 17, contained a famous prophecy about a future world leader whose arrival would be announced by a star. The Magi wanted to know, so what's behind the bright star in the sky? Who does it point to? Where can we find him? What kind of a king could he possibly be? We sometimes refer to the Magi as the three wise men. Well, maybe the reason they were so wise was because they asked good questions. They were humble enough to acknowledge that they had a lot to learn. Listen, friends, people who discover a soul-satisfying relationship with God are people who ask good questions. Now, how do I know God exists? What's God like? Where, Where does a relationship with God begin? Is the Bible a book I can trust to give me an accurate picture of God? questions. So are you more like the super curious magi when it comes to seeking God or like the disinterested King Herod and religious leaders? I just finished reading a book by Becky Pippert called Stay Salt. 
Becky tells of interesting conversations she's had with people around the world who've asked good questions in their search for God. Like the woman in Eastern Europe who'd been raised by parents who were atheists. This woman was a brilliant violinist, and she said to Becky, you know, sometimes when I play beautiful music, it almost feels like I'm worshiping. So where does that feeling come from? If I'm nothing more than a random collection of atoms, why am I so moved by the beauty of a Bach violin concerto? Great question. Becky replied by telling this woman that, interestingly, Bach signed all of his musical compositions with the Latin words, sole deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Bach understood that there is a creator God who made us in his image with the ability to savor beautiful music. This God, according to the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah, sings, sings over those who've put their hope and trust in him. And when God sent Jesus, his son, to earth that first Christmas, his birth was accompanied by an angel choir, bursting out in beautiful song over the sleepy town of Bethlehem. So where does our love for beautiful music come from? Good question. It comes from God. Listen, friend, God has built into you a desire to know him. He wants you to ask questions. Unfortunately, that innate curiosity we have as children, asking 73 questions a day, it tends to fade as we get older, at least with respect to our questions about God. But if we really want to find God this Christmas, the search begins with questions. A close friend of mine, his name is Hal. Hal wrote a best-selling book a few years ago called The God Questions. It's sold almost half a million copies, and it addresses questions like, is God real? Do all roads lead to heaven? I mean, how can a good God allow suffering? Maybe you just assume that there aren't good answers to questions like these, and so your search for God has never gotten much traction. Let me encourage you this Christmas to reignite the search. Here's another great book for spiritual seekers, The Reason for God. It's a New York Times bestseller by author Tim Keller, The Reason for God. Uh, Tim addresses the tough questions that skeptics raise about the Christian faith. And so ask questions and find answers. Okay, number two, here's my second tip for those who want to find God. Pursue Jesus. Okay, pursue Jesus. And this takes us back to the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. Their opening question, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews, was pretty upsetting to King Herod. He was an extremely paranoid leader who didn't want any competition for his throne. In fact, Herod had already executed a wife and two sons whom he suspected were not loyal to him. So Herod pulled in a group of Bible scholars and asked them, what's this about a coming king? Where is he supposed to show up? And the Bible scholars said, well, yes, God promised a great ruler 700 years ago through the prophet Micah. And Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem was just five miles south of Jerusalem. So Herod called in the Magi, told him to go look for a king in Bethlehem and report back to him once they found this king. Herod obviously had plans to eliminate anyone the Magi discovered. So let me read the next part of this story in Matthew chapter 2. We're dropping down to verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
Now, just an interesting side note here. In most of our manger scenes, we see the Magi alongside Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. But the Magi didn't arrive on Christmas night at the manger. They came some months later, by which time Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus were living in a house. That's what Matthew says. Did you see that? On coming to the house, the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. I mean, this was the culmination of a long and determined search. The Magi didn't wake up one morning and say, ah, we got nothing to do, let's check out that funky star that's shining over a village a few miles down the road. Now, it wasn't just a few miles down the road. According to historians, the Magi came from either Persia, modern-day Iran, or Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. So it was at least a 400-mile trip to Bethlehem, across a desert. Their search was ultimately rewarded, but only because they didn't give up until they found what they were looking for. That's how it is with the pursuit of God. I mean, listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 29, verses 13 and 14. God says, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me, listen, with all your heart, I will be found by you. So God's looking for some earnestness on our part, some indication that we really, really want to find him. Maybe you've wondered about God, but have you searched for him? The Magi traveled hundreds of miles in pursuit of Jesus. So what does their pursuit of Jesus have to do with our pursuit of God? Well, Jesus is the physical manifestation of the invisible God. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So if you're looking for God, pursue Jesus. What will motivate you to search until you find him? Well, it may be a deep-seated sense of loneliness. I mean, it stands to reason that if God intends for us to share a relationship with himself, the absence of such a relationship is going to leave us feeling lonely and not knowing why. Whether we're living by ourselves or surrounded by friends and family. Or, or maybe we're motivated to pursue Jesus until we find him because because of a personal crisis, a, a job crisis or health crisis, a financial crisis, a marriage crisis. You know, we're suddenly in a situation that's over our heads. We don't have the resources to cope with it, so we need divine help. Pursue Jesus. Or maybe it's guilt that drives us to jump on our camels and travel 400 miles across the desert in search of Jesus. We've messed up in big ways and small ways but we've heard that Jesus offers forgiveness and a fresh start. Or, or maybe we've got the world by the tail. Things are going great, but nothing feels ultimately purposeful. It seems like we're spending a lot of time and effort on things that don't really matter. Maybe our quest for purpose is what propels us to pursue Jesus. I'll tell you what it was from Mike Lindell. Mike's the CEO of MyPillow. You've probably seen one of his infomercials on TV. I can't get their jingle out of my head. Uh, for the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, try MyPillow.com. You know, Mike has an addictive personality. In his young adult years, he discovered that he could temporarily escape his problems in one of two ways, gambling or cocaine. But once he got started, Mike couldn't stop. Now, rehabs didn't work, business success didn't break the chains, even after MyPillow started raking in millions of dollars. 
relationships came and went. You know, Mike needed, in the words of AA, he needed a higher power to deliver him from self-destructive behaviors. But all the higher powers he tried failed him until he met Jesus. I recently read Mike's autobiography called What Are the Odds? Subtitled From Crack Addict to CEO. Now, what are the odds? Mike claims that Jesus... Jesus set him free from the things that were destroying his life. So if you're hoping to find God this Christmas, pursue Jesus. And don't stop pursuing him until you've got him. And even after you've got him, after you've got him, keep pursuing Jesus every day. It's kind of like a good marriage. I know couples that have been married for decades, but their relationship keeps growing because they've never stopped pursuing each other. And I know couples whose marriages are lifeless because somewhere along the line, they stopped investing in that relationship. They're no longer pursuing each other. Maybe you've been a Christ follower for years, but the relationship is stale. You haven't been pursuing Jesus. You haven't been worshiping him with other believers on the weekends. You you haven't been reading his word. You you haven't been looking for ways to serve him in the world. You, You haven't been sharing his good news with others. You've got a God-shaped hole in your life that only God can fill. And you know that. But you haven't been filling it with Jesus. Do what the Magi did. Pursue Jesus with all your heart. Now, one last tip from these guys. Okay, tip number three, surrender your life. Surrender your life. Here's the last part of the Magi's story in Matthew 2. We're picking it up at verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I want you to note how the kingship, the kingship of Jesus is underscored in these verses. For starters, the scene is set in Bethlehem. And although Bethlehem was just a small village, it did have the reputation of being the birthplace of King David, Israel's most illustrious king. And Bethlehem was the place where the prophet Micah had said, a ruler greater than David would be born. So we know there's something extra special about this baby that the Magi have discovered in Bethlehem, something kingly. You know, a second emphasis on Jesus' kingship can be noted in the posture of the Magi. They bowed down and worshiped Jesus. They bowed down. I just finished watching for the second or third time the HBO miniseries on John Adams. When the American colonies were fighting against the British in the Revolutionary War, Adams was sent to France to plead for help from the French king, Louis XVI. Adams had never been in the presence of a king before, so he needed to be coached ahead of time about how to approach the throne. Bowing down repeatedly was a big part of it. Bowing. But you know, the Magi didn't need any coaching. No one told them to humble themselves in the presence of this young child. There was something about Jesus that caused them to instinctively drop to their knees and worship him. A third sign of Jesus' kingship, the gifts that the Magi presented to him. I mean, there were three gifts, which has led people to conclude over the centuries that there must have been three Magi, one per gift. But the text doesn't say. I mean, there could have been five or seven or even more Magi offering Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Now, Bible scholars have debated for years whether or not there was some significance to each gift. I mean, certainly the gold pointed to Jesus' kingly nature, since kings were known for their wealth. But is it possible that frankincense pointed to Jesus' deity, since incense was burned in the temple where God was worshipped? And perhaps myrrh? You know, maybe myrrh pointed to Jesus' eventual sacrificial death, since myrrh is a fragrant substance that was used in ancient times for embalming those who had died. Now, these are wonderful ideas, but most Bible scholars feel they read too much into the three gifts. Here's what we can say for sure about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were very expensive gifts. I mean, the Magi didn't come with typical baby shower gifts. You know, a pack and play, several onesie outfits, and a, a gift card for bye-bye baby. No, they came with gifts that were fit for a king. Gifts that were associated in ancient times with royalty. If we hope to discover a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then we need to understand who this Jesus is. He's not merely a baby in a manger for us to have warm thoughts about once a year as we hold a candle and sing Silent Night. And he's more than a great moral teacher for us to follow as a role model. And his identity even extends beyond that of a, a sacrifice hanging on a cross for us to put our hope in for salvation. Now, Jesus is the king He's the king of the universe for us to bow before, surrendering our lives, pledging our allegiance. This past fall at Christ Community Church, I had the privilege of interviewing Daryl Strawberry at one of our weekend services. Now, if you've been a baseball fan for any number of years, you know about Daryl Strawberry. He was National League Rookie of the Year back in 1983 when he started his career with the Mets and in 1986, Darrell helped the Mets win the National League pennant 21 and a half games ahead of the second place team. And then the Mets beat the Boston Red Sox in the World Series. Darrell looked like a huge success, but his life was an absolute mess. And as I interviewed Darrell, he told us the story of how his dad, an alcoholic, had abandoned the family when Darrell was a boy. And so Darrell grew up without the steady influence of a father in his life. He didn't know how to handle his baseball fame. And so we turned to drugs and womanizing. And that led to countless trips to rehab and one broken marriage after another. Well, along the way, Daryl found Jesus. Actually, Daryl found Jesus several times, but it never produced lasting change in his life. Why not? Because Daryl never surrendered to Jesus as king. Oh, Daryl wanted Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' comfort and Jesus' blessings but he didn't want to get off the throne of his life and turn it over to Jesus, turn over the throne to Christ. Well, eventually it happened. Daryl finally surrendered to Christ, and the change has been so remarkable that even ESPN did a 90-minute documentary on the miraculous transformation in Daryl's life. So have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? In just a minute, I'd like to walk you through a prayer of surrender Around Christ Community Church, we say that a surrender prayer needs to include three very important words. The first word is sorry. Sorry. We must tell God that we're sincerely sorry for pretending to be our own king or queen instead of submitting to his rule in our lives. You know, in countless ways, we choose to go our way instead of God's way. We're rebels at heart. When we say sorry... We're not only acknowledging that our self-rule has often messed up our lives and hurt other people, we're also acknowledging that we've been rejecting the loving and wise leadership of God Almighty. 
I'm sorry, God. So sorry. The, the second important word in a prayer of surrender is thanks. Thanks. We need to thank God for sending us Jesus. We need to thank Jesus for not only coming to earth that first Christmas, but also for laying down his life on the cross for our sins. You see, there are negative consequences for our sins, for our consistent habit of doing things God's word tells us not to do and, and not doing the things we're supposed to do. Our pride and anger, our sexual immorality and disregard for the poor, our dishonesty and racial prejudice and resentment toward those who have wronged us. I mean, these sins have alienated us from a perfectly holy God. We're disconnected. And because God is also the giver of life, the giver of life, to be disconnected from God results in death. We've died spiritually on the inside, and we're destined to die physically at the end of this life and eternally in the world to come. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, the penalty being death. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. And then he rose from the dead and Jesus is alive today and he offers forgiveness for sins and new life to anyone who will surrender to him. That's what we say thanks for. Thanks for giving your life for me on the cross, Jesus. Thanks for offering me the gift of forgiveness and new life. Now here's the third important word in the surrender prayer. You know, after we've prayed sorry and thanks, we need to pray please. I mean, this is where we invite Jesus to take over the throne of our lives. Please become my king. You know, please teach me what it means to follow you. Please help me love and understand your word so that, that I can know your mission for my life. You know, please help me get connected to a church where others are also serving you as king. Please. Are you ready to pray the surrender prayer? Okay, let's do it. Christmas Eve is a wonderful time to make Jesus the king of your life. Would you bow your heads with me? God, as we're bowed before you, some of us in our homes, watching with family, some of us on our own or possibly with friends, God, we pray this prayer from our hearts. And you're talking to God right now, so start with that first word, sorry. God, say it in your own words, but God, I am so sorry for trying to run my own life instead of giving you the throne. I am so sorry for the mess I've made. I'm sorry for the, the people I've hurt. And most of all, I'm sorry for that rebellious nature that has pushed back against your leadership in my life. Tell God right now, sorry in your own words. The second word is thanks. Jesus came to earth to die on a cross for you, to take the death you deserve to die. Would you tell Jesus in your words, thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for offering me the gift of forgiveness and new life. You tell him, he wants to hear from you. And if you've said sorry, and if you've said thanks. Now the third word is please. This is the invitation where you say, Jesus, would you please become my king? I'm surrendering to you. Would you please begin to lead my life? Would you please help me understand the Bible, your word, so I know what your mission for me is? 
Would you help me find a group? Please help me find a group of people who are moving in that same direction, following you as king. Lord, I believe that you have heard our prayers this Christmas Eve. Those who have sincerely surrendered to you, who have said sorry and thanks and please, they have become brand new people in Christ. Christ has come to live on the inside by his spirit and that's the best Christmas gift we could have. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.